the whole world is trying to understand love. In every generation, our books, our movies, our songs, and even our peers try to shape our opinions with competing and often contradicting ideals. Left in their shadows are confused and misguided people who are desperately searching for more. More truth, more reality, more power. The Church of Jesus Christ offers a distinct definition, the alternative to the alternatives, the truth over the lies, the one who is love himself, God. Love is ours because we are His. Once saved by His unconditional love, He then empowers us to live it out in gospel-centered relationships. So here we are, and here we stand, the people of God, reclaiming love. How are we doing, church? Good? Good to see you today. And we are in 1 John chapter 2, if you want to turn there. 1 John chapter 2, and if you do not have a Bible, uh, you may grab the Bible that's in front of you in the pew, and you can turn uh, to 1021, and there you will find 1 John chapter 2, and we are going to be in verses 15 through 17, and we finish our series today on reclaiming love, and we have looked from the very beginning at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and their love for one another, and then his love for us and our salvation, and then how we should show this redemptive love in our marriages, in our families, and in the local church. The church loving one another, being a unique group of people, so many different personalities, and yet we come together in Christ. So today, as we are looking at 1 John chapter 2, we're going to end with sharing this love with the world. The world has many different definitions of love. And remember, when we said love, we're not talking about something new. We're talking about something that's older than time itself. This is way back in eternity has always been this love of God. And so we want to share with something, uh, something with the world that's actually old, that has always been. And yet when many people are looking for something new, the new, latest, greatest thing out there, hoping that that will bring a completeness and a wholeness to their life. And so at this time, read with me in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's our question today. As we look at this text and we'll be traveling through the Bible today, how do we love those in the world without loving the world? How do we love those who are in the world without falling in love with the world? So we see here in 1 John chapter 2, we are not to love the world. So let's first address this. Do we have a contradiction in the Bible in regards to love? Because here we're told not to love the world. But if we look in John 3.16, which I'm sure that most of us know, for God so loved the world. 
So we see in one passage that God loves the world, and then we see in 1 John, same author as the Gospel of John, and then 1 John saying God loved the world, and then we are not to love the world. But if we remember Rainbow Roland Stewart, Rockin' Roland, who used to go to all the sporting events, he'd have the rainbow-colored, what do you call that, afro, and he would hold up John 3.16. Maybe you'd see him behind a goalpost, or you'd see him behind a famous golfer. Uh, He was at the 1984 Republican Convention, and he was there for Princess Diana and Prince Charles. He was there at their wedding, and he was always known for getting in the camera, and he would have John 3.16. And he claims that what he wanted people to know is the love of God, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And then later, he took a little crazy path, and well, now he's, he's in prison. But at the time, he held up John 3.16, and others followed I mean, now, maybe you can still see it at ball games. People hold up John 3.16. We know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So, is this a contradiction? Does God love the world or does he not love the world. And then Jesus Christ commands his disciples to not only love their neighbor, but to love their enemies. So clearly, we are to love the people in the world. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So as there's the just and the unjust, the good and the evil residing here on this earth, he still gives daily provision for all. And he says to love them who persecute you. So obviously what we're seeing in 1 John chapter 2 is not that we hate the people, being the world. So now we need to figure out what he means by world, because there is no contradiction here. But there is a great need for careful examination. Because for most of us, if we just open up the Bible and we see world, we're immediately going to think all, every last person. Obviously, that's what world means. But does that mean everyone? Is that always the use of world? Clearly not. In fact, when we look here in John, the book of John, there could be ten different ways that this word world is used. And yet, in the Greek, it means cosmos. So you have the same Greek word with different meanings. It could be the created universe. God created the world. He spoke it into existence. That's world. That's the world. Also, it can mean all the people on earth. Yes, at times it can mean that. It can mean the chosen people of God. It can mean those who are of the society of rebels, rebels against God, those who are in their sin. It can mean just a large group of people, like when the Pharisees said, there goes the world following after Jesus Meaning just a, a, a large group. You definitely didn't mean every single last person following Jesus. It can also mean this worldly system 
under the dominion of Satan. And I believe that's what we see in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 15. What about John 3.16? What does he mean by world? Because if God loves the world, what, what are we seeing here? Well, in the first 15 verses of John chapter 3, he's ha- having this conversation with a man named Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. And he is a leader among the people. And yet he's seen Jesus teaching and, and doing miracles and speaking with authority. So he goes to Jesus at nighttime. Why would he go to Jesus at nighttime? So no one would see him. And yet he comes to Christ in the evening, at night, which is a great physical representation of the spiritual darkness of his heart. And yet he comes to Jesus and he questions Jesus and his teaching. He wants to know more about Jesus. You say, obviously, you're a rabbi. Obviously, you speak with authority. Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And this is an insult to Nicodemus because Nicodemus is a Jew. He would consider himself to be from the father Abraham. So why would he need to be reborn? Because he comes in a great bloodline of people. He should be qualified for the Messiah. He's of the people. And now Jesus is telling him, you must be born again. And then comes John 3.16. Which means that what Jesus is saying is that this salvation is not just for the Jews. It's not just for a man like Nicodemus. It's for many nations. And it's amazing the hardness of their hearts of Israel that they would forget that When Abraham was given this promise, it wasn't just for one nation. It was for many nations. Genesis 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. See, it's right there in the beginning in Genesis 17. A multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Why? Why the change from Abram to Abraham? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Even his name Abraham, when they would speak the name Abraham, it means a multitude of nations. His very name was a a forecast that there would be the world, all nations, people of every kind, man and woman, Jew, Gentile, red, yellow, black, white, All different types of people is spoken of in John 3.16. So that it's not just the Jews who are owed salvation, and no one is owed salvation. But we see a picture of the world. All different types of people. He is a father of a multitude. In Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 9, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness... Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So it's by faith who are the sons of Abraham. Then verse 8 of Galatians 3. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Don't you love that? That the gospel was being preached in the Old Testament as well. To Abraham, the gospel was preached saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Does this mean all nations, all people, every single person? Well, let's see what verse 9 says. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. 
man of faith. This does not mean that every last person to live will be blessed with salvation. That's not what this means. No, but that people of all tribes, of all types, will be brought to the Father. Only those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Romans 4, 13, 16, and 17, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So there's a guarantee of salvation for all who are the offspring of Abraham. And this is a known offspring. It was guaranteed to him. When God says to Abraham, look at the stars, look at the sand. Those stars have names. Every grain of sand has a name. For they are in Christ. They're his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. And listen to this. And calls into existence the things that do not exist. So he gives life to the dead. Who are the dead? The dead are those who are not in Christ. The dead are then brought to life in Christ. He calls into existence things that do not exist. What are the things that do not exist? Well, we were, as followers of Christ, in the world, of the world, following the ways of the world. And he calls us out of the world and makes us in Christ. We did not exist in Christ, now we exist in Christ through Christ's work alone on the cross. And so as followers, what makes us different from the world? But we need to understand this question as we go out and share the gospel. What makes us different? Is it in the way that we speak, in the way that we dress, the way that we look, the way we treat other people? Yeah, there's, there's a hint there. But what makes us different from the world. Here's what makes us different. Because we were of the world. And then we look in John 15, 19. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But understand that just because he's speaking to his disciples doesn't mean that it's only limited to them. It's for all of those who are in Christ. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Let's pause there for a second. If you're of the world, the world loves you as its own. You have everything in common with the world. And God is not at the center of that point of view. He's not the one being loved. The world is the one being loved. This worldly system, the sin that decays and destroys and separates, tears apart. If you love the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world. Okay, Because you're not of the world. We're going to understand something. The world's not going to love us as its own. But why are we not of the world? But I chose you out of the world. Because Jesus Christ speaks it here. He has chosen those out of the world that are his. 
It wasn't by mistake. It was due to his great love for the world. Of all nations, of drawing us out from being in love with the world so that we may be in love with God. And he's telling his disciples, don't get this mixed up, man. You, you did nothing of your own to come to me. I chose you out of the world. This is the victory for Christians. That we are in Christ through his great love for us. Therefore, the world hates you. The world hates those who are in Christ. What do we mean by world? I think D.A. Carson says it well here. The world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. He goes on. He says, former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. I think we could say a big amen to that. It's not popular to follow Jesus. It's not popular to no longer be in constant rebellion, in persistent rebellion, but now to obey. And yet the world in its rebellion looks to those who obey Christ, and not only do they just disapprove of it, but there is a hatred towards those who follow Jesus. Where did this hatred begin? It begins with Jesus. They hated Jesus. What makes you think that they will not hate you, Christ follower? So, as Christ followers, what makes us different from the world? Here's the answer. You ready? We no longer persist in rebellion. We no longer continue in this rebellion against God. This hatred against God, us raising our fists against God. We no longer continue in that. By glorifying ourselves through our sin under the power of Satan. In fact, we're no longer under the reign of Satan. For all of those who are of the world, they're under the reign and the power of Satan. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you say, I don't want to follow Jesus because I want to be free. I want to make my own decisions. Well, you need to know the truth. You're not free. You're a prisoner. And Satan has his way with you any time, any day that he wants. And you're a prisoner to your body, your flesh. You follow the appetites of your flesh. Whatever your flesh wants, that's what you do. Whatever your wicked heart desires, that's what you go after. You're not free. You are a prisoner. You are held captive. But those who are in Christ are set free from their flesh. They are set free from the captivity of Satan, and they come under a better ruler, a loving ruler, that being Jesus Christ. There is freedom in Christ. And so we strive for holiness by honoring God in all that we do in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. But as we strive in a holiness, understand this, because we were once of the world, but no longer are we of the world, but we are of Christ, we can relate well to the world. We can relate to the world. We know what the world is facing. We know what they're going through. You can relate to the world because you used to be of the world. You still reside in the world, but you are now in 
Christ. And so understand this. We were not something other than the world before our salvation. We were of the world. So today, if you're a Christ follower and we look to the world, we know what they're going through. We're not separate from that. It wasn't that you were born different than them. No, you were reborn in Christ. So we need to understand this as we go and share the gospel, share this good news with the lost. Instead of acting like we were never in that position, instead of acting like we still don't struggle with sin. And so our only hope for being a follower of Christ is the love of God. It's by God's grace and his mercy. Let's look in Ephesians chapter 2 together. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. There it's up on the screen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Wow. Like the rest of mankind. So the rest of mankind, those who are not in Christ, are continuing to follow their passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and they are children of wrath. We once were in that position. This is John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, right here. We were once in that state of being, but now Christ's follower no longer. Why? Because of the love of God. That is your boasting, is in God's love. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not when we decided to start following God, Not when we started having more favorable actions towards God. No, it was in the deadness of our sin. Dead meaning no pulse, no heartbeat for God. No loving God, no warning God, no following after him. You may have known his name, you may know the name of Jesus, but you were dead in your sins. Here is the work of his grace because of the great love with which he loved us. Here he comes after us with his love. God loved us when we didn't love him. That's what he's saying. Let's be clear in this understanding of our state we used to be in and now in the position that we were in. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking to Christians. He's saying, this is who you used to be. But then the love of God invaded your life. He chose you out of the world. He's made you his. You're his possession. Even when you were dead in your sins, you did not love him. He loved you. This is what we see in God's word. We have no right to be prideful in our salvation, but every reason to be most humble. When you hear this gospel, it doesn't lead you to be prideful. It doesn't lead you to sit back and do nothing. It compels you to go forward. This is why we do missions, because God loved us. God saved us. God set us apart, and he has made us his ambassadors 
This is why we have Romans 10, 14, and 15. How will they know unless someone goes and preaches to them? They will not know. And how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we go forth and we proclaim this message. This is why we do Annie Armstrong offering. Every penny that you give today, and maybe some of you literally will, will give pennies. Every, every penny that you give, everything that you drop in this box or that box or the, or the boxes in the back before you leave, go directly to missionaries, church planters in North America. And it used to be that, hey, man, we need to go throughout the world. But you know what? That, that's a great need always. Jesus told us to go out into all the world. But we also need to be around North America. There's a lot of darkness in North America. We have church planters spread out all throughout this land. And why are they uprooting themselves and going to the big cities where there's great lostness and hardly any churches? One Baptist church there in Washington, D.C., in that vicinity. And you have church planters who are there sharing the gospel with intelligent people, people who appear to know it all. Why are they doing this? Because they will not know unless they hear the gospel, the same gospel which you have heard. So that's why we give to missions. You know, one of the most neglected places in Valdosta by the local church one of the most neglected places, asked our deacons this, asked our leadership this, is Valdosta State University. One of the most neglected places, our college university. We kind of treat it as its own city, let it take care of itself. In fact, I heard some response by some who said, no, we have college kids who come to, to our church, right? But is that the same? Is that the same of us ministering to the campus? It's not. And we love that college students come and, and the work that you guys are doing on the campus, and we should be right there with you. You know, God has put us in this area for a reason. You may love your favorite Division I football team. I know I do. But he's put a Division II football team here with men who play football, coaches who coach, and, and other athletic teams that we look at them and go, oh, yeah, man, you're not D1. Sorry. And yet God's put us here in this town to love them and minister to them. And for their greatest need being Jesus Christ, that we can share that with them. And yet when you talk to the average person, they go, yeah, but man, I, I just don't know if I can make that investment. I challenge you, church, to do this as we are committed to reaching the university, not just sports, but all those international students who come throughout the whole world, God bringing the world to us that we can minister to them and love them in Christ, that we can share the gospel with them, that we can take to them this love, those who are dead in their trespasses, that they may experience this love of God and be brought to life. I challenge you, church, to begin praying. How will you be a part of reaching Valdosta State University? And that we will no longer treat it as second rate. And some of you don't. Some of you are very faithful to ministering on that campus, ministering to professors, ministering to the arts, whatever passion you have, whatever you connect with, would you begin to pray, how can I minister to that campus? That's us penetrating the culture, guys. That's not us expecting people to come to us so that we can penetrate them. No, we go out to penetrate the culture. And what do we go with? This message right here, that we were once dead in our sins and we have been brought to life in Christ Jesus. Here's this question. How do we love those who are in the world 
without loving the world. If we're going to do this, if we're going to minister in our community, and there are many areas of lostness, it could be your next-door neighbor. There are some of you in the room today who are not followers of Jesus, and we're so glad that you're here. I want you to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, we do not always take it serious that you need Jesus. Because we're afraid of being rejected, of being despised, of not knowing enough. So that silences us. But we must go to the world. So how do we go to the world without loving the world? How do we minister to those in the world? Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the ways of the world are not from the Father. They didn't come from him. They weren't produced from God. No. This is man and his sin. This is from Satan who rules over the earth only because God so allows him to at this time. So here's the answer to the question, how do we love those who are in the world without loving the world? We obey God rather than man. We obey God rather than our flesh. That's how. We go in the obedience of Christ. So that the worldly desires, understanding that the worldly desires are not from God. They do not honor God. They do not lift his name up. They do not glorify him. They do not please him. It's not a way in which we show our love by loving the things of the world. These desires come from the worldly system under the reign of Satan, ruled by the flesh. These desires are fleeting. They are perishing along with the world. You know, these desires, the greatest problem, one is highly offensive to God, but also they lack eternal substance. There's no eternal substance in the things of the world. They're fleeting. They're here today, gone tomorrow. You try to hang on to them, but there's no hanging on to them. They leave you. It could be our trophies that we accumulate in our lives. They grow dust. They wear out. They fade. It could be relationships that we pursue to fill a void in our lives, but relationships become broken. They separate. They end. Death itself ends relationships. It can be a substance abuse, and maybe right now you're looking to some substance to fill your life, to fill the pain that you're going through. It could be alcohol. And right now, you're not controlling that alcohol. That, that alcohol controls you. It's an overconsumption. It may be hidden in your life, but it's raining over you. It could be drugs. Whether it's teenagers, whether it's college students, whether it's adults, some type of drug that you are caught up in right now. It's shocking to, to hear in our community how many are dealing with drugs and substance abuse. And we thought that that ended after D.A.R.E. program in fifth grade. No, it's only just beginning. So people use this to numb the pain, to bring temporary relief, but it's all temporary. No eternal substance. And along with this perish, these perishing desires is the world which is dying. Everyone who is not in Christ is dying. They are dead already spiritually, but they are dying, aging, decaying. 
This world is aging and decaying. This world will be no more. This physical planet will be made new one day. But all of those who are of the old system, all of those who are dead in their sins, will not be a part of the new earth. Destruction is set before them. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to know your future apart from Christ? Destruction forever and ever and ever and ever. It never ends. And God is just in that judgment because only he is holy. And the only way that we can be holy is to look to Jesus Christ. And if you deny Christ, you reject Christ, there is no hope. And so we want to love those in the world and we want to go to the world, be obedient to Christ, reject these things, but love the people who are struggling in these areas. Bring to them the hope of the gospel church. But may we not grow in love with it. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, this is talking about the world this worldly system, becoming a friend of the world when we are friends of Christ. This word, friend, is philia, which means to befriend, to love, to kiss. It is a fondness. And some of us have such a fondness for the world that we don't want to let go of those desires, even when we've been set free in Christ. We find ourselves going back for more. It's adopting the interest of the world to be one's own. But understand this, Christian, that the Christ follower has been adopted out of the world and into the family of God through his great love. So, when we go out to share the gospel, this good news with the lost, we do not love them by becoming like them. So we think we got to be just like them. we got to do the things that they do, whatever that may be, so that we can relate to them. We do not love what they love. We love what Christ loves. And that's the conflict. When we go out, we still go to reach them, but we let them see that we have a greater love, that being Jesus Christ. Because he loved the Father, we're to love the Father. He loved the ways of the Father. We're to love the ways of the Father. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If we loved what they loved, we would be hating them. If we went to them and we just loved the things that they loved to pursue and we never shared with them Christ, that's hating them. That's not caring for them. And yet we're so afraid to offend people. Here's the deal. Say it over and over again. The gospel will offend. And to that I say, so what if it offends you? We can all get offended over things. You know, it may be the the atheist who says, you know what? That cross offends me. And my response to the atheist would be, why does it offend you? Because if it's not even real... If Christ didn't die on the cross, if he didn't offer salvation, why does it even offend you? Why does God offend you if God's not even real? You should just laugh at us. You should scoff at us. But yet there's something more that's happening in the heart of the atheist. There is a hatred towards Jesus. That's why they want it silenced. But we're to go to the atheist and let them know how Christ lives in us and has changed our life. We're not to look to the atheist and go, man, how could you not follow Jesus? 
How could you think this? How could you not embrace the cross? Because he thinks he's alive. He thinks he has life. He thinks he's in a good position. He doesn't realize he's headed towards destruction. But those who are in Christ know. And yet we go to them and we share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. And why we embrace the cross is because it's the only way to the Father. And so we will offend. But we are not to be like them in order to reach them. John Piper says, in looking at the first two, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it refers to desires for what we don't have. And the third, the pride of life, refers to the pride in what we do have. He says, the world is driven by these two things, passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. Passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. Loving their stuff and wanting more. Loving their stuff and wanting more. And it's never enough. So let them see our passion for Christ and our humility. Not pride, but humility as we've been given everlasting treasure, eternal life. May they see that in us as we go to them, sharing with them this redemptive love, a reclaiming of love in our culture. May we take Matthew 5, 13 through 16 serious when Jesus looked to his disciples. He said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So if the world is decaying and it's dying, do you think it's an accident that Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth? No. He says, you're here to preserve. You are a preservative. The gospel is a preservative. And it has a taste that the world has not tasted. They taste death, but you taste life. You be the salt. And don't lose your saltiness. Continue to have an impact on this earth. Christians, as we go forth, may we be the salt. May we bring the taste of the gospel. But not only that, may we be the light, because there's darkness all around us, that as we penetrate the culture, we bring light. And guess what happens when you shine forth light? Either they will repel the light, and turn away or they will receive the light and come to it. One of two options. When you share the gospel, either they will fight against it, they will walk away from it, they will argue against it, or they will come to Christ. And guess what? Neither one of those depend on you. You may have said this before. I led this person to Christ. Or, hey, he saved me. Neither one of those are true. In fact, you can go through the Bible and see that you can never lead someone to Christ. That is not your job. Your job is to share the gospel. Your job is to pray for them. Your job is to pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their heart, but it's the Holy Spirit who leads them to Christ. And so when we share the gospel, there's no pride involved, only humility. And we take joy in Christ, and we are bold in our witness. And we can know this, that every time you share the gospel, either it's going to be received or rejected. One of two. Received or rejected. Pressure's off, church. It's not your job to save them, but it is your job, your calling to preach the gospel. Every last one of us. Every last one of us. I don't think it's by any accident that David said in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He might as well say, taste the salt and see the light. And that's what we do. We go forth and say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Can I share with you how good God is, what he's done in my life? Church, if we truly love those in the world, we will go to them that they may taste and see. Our victory is not when we have faith to share the gospel and someone receives Christ. That's not our victory. Our victory is that we have been given faith to share the gospel. That's our victory. Our our victory is that we have been given faith in Christ that we can share the gospel. That's our victory, period. But yet we feel like the victory is when somebody receives Jesus. Then we have been victorious, but we've been failures if they don't receive Christ. Well, you're powerless in that. You're powerless. So doesn't that just cause you to go, ah, all right, I'm going to go share because I've, I'm walking into victory. My victory is that I can tell people about Jesus. You want to go across the world and share the gospel in hopes that, hey, if one person will come to Jesus, then it will be worth it. Oh, it takes one person to come to Christ in order for it to be worth sharing the gospel? We've said that without even thinking, haven't we? For years and years we've said that as Christians. If one person comes, it was worth it. No, it's worth it that you have the privilege to share the gospel. That's worth it. That is worth it. That you understand the gospel. That you've been saved in the gospel. Jeremiah preached for 40 years and had zero converts. Jonah didn't want to share the gospel, and he had to go live in a fish for three days. Gets barfed up onto the sea. Sorry, he gets spit up onto the sea, uh, onto the shore, right? And then he goes to Nineveh, and all he says is, repent. And everybody's like, oh, Lord Jesus, help me. Right? I mean, right there, everybody repented. And you go 40 years, and then a man who didn't want to go, never sees a convert, 40 years, he goes, and the whole city repents. What gives? God gives his grace. We preach it. He saves First John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that he has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith is the victory. So, you do not love them because they love Jesus and receive your message. No. You love them because Jesus loves you. And you love Jesus. That's why you go and share the gospel. That's why we'll go and penetrate the culture this week because of Jesus. John 15, 13 through 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Are you one of his friends? Have you looked to him and do you trust that he laid down his life for you? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you trust in his grace and his love? Is this compelling you to go and share with others? Or are you here today and you're lost in your sins because maybe the cross seems foolishness to you? You know what? God designed it that way. The cross would be foolishness to you. So that in your wisdom, you would see that it's not about you. 
It's not about how smart you are, how knowledgeable you are, or what you can do, but it's the foolishness of the cross that God, the Savior of the world, would give himself on that cross. And that's your only way to the Father. It's not by any of your works. So today, could you confess before the Father, it's not my works. In fact, my works condemn me to death, to hell. But it's by the works of Jesus Christ. I believe he lived for me, he died for me, and he rose from the grave for me. Can you make that good confession today where you are, where you're seated right now, that you would say, Jesus Christ, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through you. I trust in you, Jesus. Make that good confession right where you're seated. You have that connection card with you right now. Everybody, will you just take that out for a second? Whether you feel God leading you or not, just take that card out. And if God's not leading you to check anything, that you would pray for the people around you. On there, it says, I would like to know more about following Christ. If you want to know more about following Christ, won't you just check that off? Won't you just check it off right now? Or if you're ready to follow Jesus right now, say, today I follow Christ. Because we want to follow up with you. This is no secret. I'm not going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm not going to play five, uh, five stanzas of just as I am and then plead with you to come to Christ. No, if you've heard this message today and you want to follow Jesus, now's the time. So we'd love to follow up with you today. I'm going to be standing in the back at communion because if you're not a Christ follower, your greatest need is Jesus. So I'm going to be standing in the back as we have some pastors up here. Come talk to us because until you follow Jesus Christ, communion is not for you. It's only for those who are in Christ. That's not something we came up with. That's, that's biblical. That you would not eat and drink condemnation to yourself, but that you would come in Christ. So I'm going to be in the back there. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, we've had it plenty of times when we've had communion before. People come back and said, I need to follow Jesus. We'd love to talk with you. You will not inconvenience us one bit. You come. But also on that, you see, I want to be a part of a community group. I would like to be a part of Perimeter Basics. All of that's connecting you to the local church. And if you're not a part of either one of those or hadn't experienced either one of those, check that off. And in a moment, when we come forward to, or when we leave today, the boxes that are at the exits, you just drop that in the box. You just drop it in the box. As we have our offering time after communion, God still leads you to give. Church, you give faithfully. But to those who you are here today, and this is weighing heavy on your heart, we want to follow up with you. Immediately. At this time, we're getting ready for communion. And as you see the bread here in the cup, which represents the body of Jesus Christ and, and the blood of Jesus, we know that his body was broken for us due to our brokenness and sin. He was broken for us. As followers of Christ, we believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died for real sins the actual sins of those whom he was going to redeem and set free. Real sins, sins in which we've committed knowingly and unknowingly. And when you take that bread, you are reminded that he died for every last one of your sins. And it's only through Christ that is your hope. And you would take that bread and you would dip into the blood of Jesus Christ. A reminder that his blood was shed that life must be given. And his was the only life that could be given for you so that you could have eternal life. And this blood, this blood, this blood, wash, blood washes one of your sins. Do you trust this? Have you experienced salvation, Jesus? If you have, whether you're a member here of this church or not, 
you can come to the table and receive today. So let's go into a time of prayer and examination before we come to receive of communion. Let us pray.